Get ready for Giving Tuesday on November the 28th. Join us in supporting the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's vital work by helping us reach our $45,000 goal. The best part? Generous donors will match the first $12,000, doubling your impact. Donate today to lock in your gift and follow us on Facebook and Instagram for updates. The irony of us filming this today is uh, this morning I had a root canal done on um, an abscess tooth. Uh, with dental insurance that covered 0% of the cost. Um, and just the root canal alone, not including the crown um, uh, that's going to be done next week, cost $1,500. You know, and, and fortunately, our family has savings that will pay for it. Um, but there are, are countless people across the country that don't have those savings and are strapped with medical debt and avoid uh, care as a result of, of the cost. Uh, Paul, I wonder if you'll talk to us about uh, the work Stan was doing towards the end of his life and working with state and national governments who um, work legislatively towards uh, equitable medical care. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Edna Hale, your podcast host. This year we're celebrating our eighth year on the podcast, bringing you better interviews with your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online and share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We also want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Folden-Lord, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. Thanks for listening. Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, A Model Ministry, and Gardner-Webb University's School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it, don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023, for more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity programs, scholarships, and grants, call 704 706-3205 and visit gardner-web.edu. Our guests for this week's CBF podcast conversation are Paul Michael Angel and Jeffrey Eastman. Paul is a filmmaker focusing on documentaries. Jeff is the CEO of Remote Area Medical. They represent a new film, Medicine Man, The Stan Brock Story. Paul and Jeff, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you for having us. Looking forward to talking about the film. So, so Jeff, we'll start with you first. For those that maybe aren't familiar with remote area medical, what would you want people to know about its vision? Uh, 
it's an organization started by Mr. Stan Brock, the man behind the Medicine Man story. Uh, Stan started us in 1985 to provide free health care to those in need. Normally, they can't get access to health care. Uh, we operate coast to coast and over 150 separate operations per year, driven by volunteers to provide free health care to our neighbors. Now, Paul, how did how did you learn about REM and, and Stan Brock, who, who we'll talk about here in just a few moments? And, and why did you feel compelled to share this story? Well, I'm ashamed to say that my research skills go no further than checking the national newspapers. So I was I was looking at the uh, the Times, the Sunday Times, and this article popped up about the U.S. healthcare situation, which you know in 2012 this was, and I knew already there were issues with U.S. healthcare. Um, the ACA was about to be introduced that year. Um, and it, and it really shocked me, frankly, as somebody who comes from the United Kingdom, where we have a free national healthcare system. I say free, it actually comes out of your tax money, but you don't see it, so you don't care so much. Um, so I was, I, I had always been quite moved by that issue. I thought it was pretty serious and and terrible that such a, a wealthy nation should have so many people that struggle to to see a doctor. So I'm looking at the Times and I see the story about Stan Brock and it says he's doing these free pop up health clinics. But actually, he in the United States, but he, actually, he's a British guy um, who fled his public school, became um, an Amazonian cowboy for 15 years, uh, riding horses barefoot, uh, taught himself to to um, to ride and became a cowboy was then discovered by um, US wildlife TV producers when he was 30, who took him off to the US uh, and, and took him to a, a world of fame on um, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Um, but later in life, had had this change in life that meant that he'd given all of that up. Um, and I mean, he sold his house, he sold his car, he, he, he devoted the rest of his life um, to an organization that does free pop-up healthcare clinics all across um, the US. And he and he kind of started it from nothing. Um, like the first expedition they ever did in Cook County, um, Tennessee in 1991 was just Stan, uh, an old beaten up pickup, pickup truck, two dental technicians, um, some gas that was um, paid for with um, donated money and some donated drugs from a drug company. Because of course they needed medical supplies. Um, and today, this organization uh, stands um, as the largest organization of its type in the U.S., has delivered over $100 million of free treatment, has done over a 1,000 expeditions all across the U.S., operates in something like 40 states. Um, Jeff's going to correct me on all of those. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, so this is a tremendous story and not just one that's fit for a 60 minute TV piece. I thought this is a feature length film about this guy's life, like where he's coming from, how he's evolved as a person, but also what he's doing in the current day, which is this unfolding story about the clinics and the um, the, the years of the ACA and how, how things changed or did not change for those that don't uh, can't access healthcare. Um, I thought it was perfect. So having read the article on a Sunday evening, I decided I was just going to Google remote area medical and give them a call. So I call, I, I make the call and a, a, a sort of 
sonorous British voice answers the phone. Remote area medical, Stan Brock speaking. And straight away, everything I'd read in the article about how he devoted his life, he'd taken like a vow of poverty, he's a workaholic, this is all he lives for. It was all immediately proven to me with this call. He, you know, he's answering the phone at HQ on on a Sunday night, um, and I said, "Please, I, I I would love to do a film all about your life." And very fortunately, um, he agreed to do it. And, and here we are now, um, ten years later, um, and and this film is um, coming to screens uh, all across America, uh, high streets, uh, main street cinemas um on november the 14th november the 14th this year so it's been a long journey well i want to get to stan in just a second but jeff you know to help people kind of understand the scope of this work the numbers are just staggering since 1985 you all have provided medical vision and dental care for more than 900,000 patients um the equivalent of um 189.5 million in free medical care do you all ever just sit back and look at the magnitude of those numbers? You know, we keep track of the, of the numbers so we know how we're doing. What really strikes me, and you'll see in, in, in the movie, and, and the hardest part about this whole organization is when you go to just pick it, pick anywhere in the United States, uh, from the borders, uh, Rio Grande to the northern border to Florida to California, and those individuals come up and they wait all night long in the parking lot. You've got great volunteers for medical, dental, and vision. And you might be only able to see 400 of them. And you've got to tell another 40, I'm sorry, we just can't see you today. We don't. All the doctors have seen everybody they can. There's just no possible way. But that's the part that is the hardest part. It's not sitting back on our laurels and say, hey, this is how many people we've treated. It's here's those 40 individuals or 20 that we just couldn't get to. So that's, you know, we look back in the organization, that's, it's always just one more patient. Well, let's, let's talk about Stan. Obviously, all of this work is inspired by this man. And, and for those that grew up in the 60s and 70s, they, you know, they probably tuned into Wild Kingdom, a long running TV show that, um, Stan was the, the co-host on it was kind of the precursor to a lot of the uh, wildlife shows we now see on just a whole network dedicated to it um, you know Paul this is such a fascinating story to kind of to kind of how you were able to pair up this man's uh, personal life and then that, how that merged into this this passion and calling um, how did you pull that story out of him as as you were interviewing him well <laughs> With some with some difficulty. I mean, Stan was great at telling stories that were amazing, rip-roaring, adventurous stories. Um, but like us all, I think he he did struggle to talk in emotional terms. If I asked him what he'd feel, he'd always reply with, oh, I think. And I'd say, oh, don't, don't tell me what you think. Tell me what you feel. Um, so... I had to kind of earn that right. I think that that's the case with with any anybody that you work with. Um, when I met Stan, he was seventy six. I was thirty four. Um, I flew into Sacramento for a huge clinic that Remote Area Medical were doing at um, 
Cal Expo. Um, big, big four-day clinic. I think 5,000 people were treated in those four days. It was tremendous. That was my first uh, time stepping in, in on United States soil, actually. Um, so in many ways, like my experience of United States has been brought to me through um, Stan and the work he does. We can't go any further without talking about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. How does your congregation handle ministry staff leadership for areas such as youth and children's ministry? More and more churches are cultivating these leaders from within their congregations. Going away to seminary is not an option for these persons, yet many desire some level of theological education to better prepare them for their ministry role. In response to this trend, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has launched the Homegrown Initiative. The Homegrown Initiative offers ministry leaders options for training and growth that fits into their busy schedules. If you or someone else at your church is serving as a homegrown minister and is looking to be better equipped as a minister, visit bsk.edu to learn more about new creative options for growth. bsk.edu. That's bsk.edu. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. He's not exactly, um, you know, uh, um, an arrogant person, you know, he's, he's very humble about, you can tell that through the story you're sharing. And so sometimes essentially asking somebody to share why they felt called to care for other people and, you know, take that vow of poverty. It's hard to kind of pull that out of people, especially people who are meek and humble in that kind of way. Yeah, you're right. Um, you know, Stan said, Stan never said that there was like one absolute moment in his life that had made him change from um, doing what he do, doing, what he was doing at the time, which was, uh, us world dive tv and um action movies um but the big thing for him was that he had spent time um in guyana um as a managing cowboys on one of the world's largest cattle ranches and during that time um before it was like 1960 and there was a kind of um, slightly colonial vibe between him and the um the cowboys and and he had to kind of maintain order with a with a certain authority and he never felt good i think about that time and in particular there were there was an event um where they were driving cattle to um the the capital city and um one of the cowboys fell ill on the trail and they couldn't they weren't able to get any um medical assistance to him because the nearest doctor was 26 days away on foot and i think that really sowed the seed for stan about how some people in the world have very 
severe needs um, in terms of healthcare. Um, and it wasn't until later on that he, when he went to the United States that he realized that he was living in Chicago initially. And he realized that people in the United States also struggle to access healthcare. Um, you know, for some people living in the United States, you might as well just be on the moon in terms of getting to healthcare because you haven't got a policy in place and you can't afford the, the sort of costs involved with um, a, a more um, walk-up approach to, to getting healthcare access. Um, so he, he came to a point in his life where he realised that what he'd been doing with um, Wildlife TV and the action movies wasn't so meaningful. He calls that the kind of frivolous years. Um, and it, it was about 1980, early 80s, that he started to put together this plan to do um, medical relief operations um, initially for the developing world. Um, but there were a lot of things standing in his way. Um, he didn't have, uh, there was no precedent for having, having done it. He didn't have access to volunteers and he didn't have the financing. And that's when Stan took, I think, the, the biggest decision of his life, which was to sell all the possessions that he had and invest the money in the creation of a charity called Remote Area Medical, uh, which would do these operations. Um, and you're probably wondering, well, how on earth could he survive? Well, the city of Knoxville donated an old school building to um, for the usage of remote area medical. I think he paid a peppercorn rent of uh, like a dollar a year. Um, and otherwise, he Stan survived on rice, beans and water. And th that would often be a friend who came to the office who just gave him a bag of rice or a, a, a bag of beans and the water, you know, he would just, su just survive on. So Stan lived a very parsimonious life um, and took no salary even from the donations that were given to most of remote area medical donations um, are from individual uh, private individual donors and small amounts lots and lots of small amounts um and stan on principle never wanted to take um any payment for his work and i i said to him um year what when they are uh, when the organization was well developed um in the year sort of 2015 uh i said to him okay you, you you're no longer a one-man band with just an old pickup truck you've got um, a, a new office you, you've got um some staff here now who are all who are getting um salaries uh, just a small number of staff but when the organization was growing um so why why is it so unreasonable for you to take some some sort of payment or some have, have a more comfortable life than um, <clears throat> having to walk and cycle everywhere and um, sleeping on the floor and you, know, you could you could have a bed like you could have a car you could go out to a restaurant from time to time, and he said to me, to renounce that now would be a betrayal of everything that I've built this organisation on and every time I have ever asked somebody else to volunteer their time to what we do here at remote area medical so it's at my duty to the volunteers of this organization that i also continue to be a volunteer mm. and that's how stan lived his life to to the very last day to the very last day um just age 45 in 1985 just pretty much turned his back on, on the previous life he had 
and went forward with this one purpose and this one um, mission um, and sacrificed everything around himself to make it happen. Jeff, uh, you know, Ram was created by one man that has now empowered over 196,000 volunteers and countless donors. Talk to us about Stan's approach to inspire so many people to be a part of this. If you look back, as Paul mentioned, his total selflessness. I mean, he, he slept here in the building, in the old rundown building. Okay? And he was driven to make a difference in the lives of others, to take that health banner and take that health care that everybody deserves, but not everybody has. And he always came to us. He never asked. He never said, can we do this? It was, how do we get this done? No matter what it was, you know, whether it was in the very early days on a Thursday night with him and some volunteers sitting around a table and everybody taking money out of their pockets and coming up with enough gas uh, to get from Knoxville uh, out to a clinic site. And it's his total selflessness and also his motivation. I mean, when Stan asked you to do something, here's a man who gave 365 days a year, year after year. And when he asked you to come and volunteer at a clinic, that's only 72 hours on the weekend. I mean, how could you not do it? Uh, when you look at my staff, you know, a significant number of us drive over an hour just to get to headquarters, you know, on a daily basis. Or when we go to clinics, we, we sleep in gymnasiums. Uh, we sleep school camps, you know, and, he set a, an amazing bar ahead of us. Uh, when we traveled, he, uh, he had a sleep bag and an old foam mat or a grass mat. And that's, uh, he'd find a spot in the school or fairgrounds and that's where he'd spend the night. So it's just, he, he was one of those people that just had a presence for lack of anything else. I mean, it was just, uh, whenever he looked at you and if he gave you a thumbs up, that was worth a million dollars. This podcast is presented to you by a new series, The Clergy Confessions Podcast, now available wherever you get your podcast. Listen to ministers share truly awful experiences in anonymity. In this first season, you will hear stories of a minister fighting for maternity leave deep into her pregnancy, a pastor being fired for discovering an embezzlement scheme by the deacon board, an associate pastor finding his senior pastor and office administrator having an affair on church property, and so much more. Visit clergyconfessions.com. Follow Clergy Confessions on Instagram, Facebook, and whatever Twitter's called now. You know, Paul, I, I know when you're filming a documentary, you want the camera to to be the storyteller, but as the eye looking through the camera, I can imagine you were impacted by the sheer number of people and the medical problems of those that were, um, that were coming to these clinics and suffering with these things. Yeah, I absolutely was. Um, I remember that first time in, in Sacramento at Cal Expo in 2012, um, 5,000 people came through that day. Um, and I was, I, I, I just thought to myself, this place, this, this under this roof, is a kind of crucible of suffering. That's why there's such a bad feeling in here because everybody um, coming through this door, lining up outside, they are suffering, and 
this this isn't just happening here in Sacramento. This is happening in communities all across America. And then I sort of reflected on it and thought, oh, hold on, though, like I'm totally missing the point here. If if I find this depressing, if this is like bothering me and, and getting me down, because the whole point of the remote area medical process is that by the time you leave the next day, maybe because you might have had to sleep in your car because the demand is so great. But by the time you walk out of that door, you will definitely be in a better position than when you came. You might have actually had all your ailments treated if you've managed to get to dental, vision and general medical or women's health as well. Um, and I thought, wow, that that's magical that people can come in that door and leave via that door infinitely better than when they came in and 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 that never fails to happen at a remote area medical clinic you you always do good P remote area medical people always do good and that must be a tremendous feeling for them um and i thought right yeah that's my job now is to capture that like suffering getting processed into like relief and joy um and i think that's kind of emotionally where the film ends up at the end it ends up being a tribute to what American people can achieve when they come together and do something for their community. And weirdly, it takes this outsider, Brit old uh, oldish British guy, um, to to bring people together. And and that's that's I think hopefully that's really inspiring to people, like the power of one, like what one person can do uh, to make a difference. Stan kind of embodies that and um yeah I, I kind of miss the fact he's not around in the world to remind us of that yeah i want to come back to that here in, in just a bit um that the magnitude of the needs caused by healthcare providers to to screen people taking in only the most severe cases is absolutely heartbreaking um however it speaks to a larger systemic issue within america's medical landscape that Healthcare is not affordable, making it out of reach for far too many, leading many people to suffer in obscurity and many succumbing to death as a result. Jeff, can you give us an accurate picture of just how big of an issue this is within America right now? It's a huge issue. You know, Paul talked about the clinic, the very first one he went to uh, in California. Uh, I've been volunteering since 2008. And it's, it doesn't make a difference where we go. We can be in Orange County, California, one of our richest counties that there are. We can be in the hills of Appalachia. We can be 10 minutes from the White House doing a clinic, and it's always the same. And there's a misconception that it's the person at the interstate that we see with a sign and a dog, and, and it's not. It, it's your favorite waitress where you ate at. Uh, in Washington, D.C., it was the mailman on that route that needed us. It's anybody you touch, you talk to. You know, it's uh, we we have insurance, but none of us have health care. You know, when you look about maneuvering through the systems, high deductibles, having to make those choices of scarce financial resources, who's going to the doctor, and then just working your right way through the system. It's just a, it's a quagmire and people often ask us, well, what do you mean by remote? Well, if, 
in the U.S., uh, you know, 99.9% .9 of us are remote from healthcare, whether we're right across the street from a hospital or right next to a doctor's office. So the irony of us filming this today is uh, this morning I had a root canal done um, on an abscessed tooth uh, with dental insurance that covered 0% of the cost. Um, and just the root canal alone, not including the crown, um, uh, that's going to be done next week cost $1,500, you know, and, and fortunately our family has savings that will pay for it. Um, but there are, are countless people across the country that don't have those savings and are strapped with medical debt and avoid, uh, care as a result of, of the cost. Uh, Paul, I wonder if you'll talk to us about, uh, the work Stan was doing towards the end of his life and working with state and national governments who, um, work legislatively towards uh, equitable medical care? Well, um, one of the things that Stan wanted to address in later life was the fact that um, state medical practitioners are not permitted to cross state lines in order to deliver free care um, in another state. And he, frankly, um, struggled to get a federal law change to happen that would affect all states. Um, so he started working um, with individual states to see if they could either change the law or create some sort of waiver agreement that would allow um, any volunteer organization, but in this case, particularly remote area medical, to enter a state with out of state uh, licensed uh, practitioners and you know operate in that state. So um, I believe Stan managed to get the agreement of 12 states to do this before he passed. I think the first one is Tennessee, Jeff, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and there are several others, including California and pretty, some pretty large states um, that have created arrangements. Not, I don't think by law, but by the creation of waiver agreements. Um, in coordination with medical associations and organizations in those areas um, that would allow. So that, that was important. And, and Stan wrote, raised uh, awareness of that issue by um, inviting politicians of all stripes um, to come to remote area medical clinics and see for themselves exactly how bad it was on the ground. And uh, a really important thing for Stan was to represent what remote area medical were doing um, at a political level. Um, so, for example, he spoke to congressional committees about uh, the situation on the ground for people in the US. So he wanted to kind of bear witness um, as somebody on the ground to all politicians in all political forums. And, and he does indeed um, go to Congress in uh, 20, 2014, and that features in the film. Um, but without any um, bias, any political bias, uh, worked with pe people from all over the political spectrum. It was really about whether uh, you were willing to come to a clinic, recognize there was a need, and then push for further um, healthcare provision at, um, at, at your in your own political uh, arena. So, you know, like Tim Kaine has come to um, re remote area medical clinics, uh, Terry McAuliffe, um, I don't, I'm not sure if Bernie Sanders has actually attended, um, but um, yeah, yeah, it's from all all sides of uh, of the and and um, 
I think that was important for Stan in the later years um, that there would be some sort of lasting change that would allow remote area medical to cross state lines and, and grow. And um, that's an important part of, of his legacy that he has got so many states to agree to cooperate because uh, of course that means that more people, uh, more people suffering can be relieved. Um, if you can bring in doctors from a large state or a large populated state like um, New York and you can bring them over to a, a more sparsely populated state like Kentucky or Virginia, which aren't a million miles, um, it just makes an awful lot of sense that uh, you can run a bigger um, operation, see more patients and relieve more suffering. So, yeah, really important work that Stan was doing there. We are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, A Model Ministry. Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then A Model Ministry is for you. We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we are here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. Let's take a break to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work. What is social work? At Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, it's empowerment, service, and justice. It's ministry, counseling, and relationship building. It's faith, practice, and community. But above all, it's learning how to help others thrive. Social workers can be found addressing the full scope of the human experience in churches, schools, prisons, government agencies, senior living centers, nonprofits, and Fortune 500 companies. Careers in social work profession are vast and varied. What is social work, you ask? It's much more than you think. Visit gsswstories.baylor.edu to explore more. So in, in 2010, the Affordable Care Act was enacted, uh, creating government-subsidized health insurance for Americans. However, many people who are in the ACA know that the deductibles and co-pays are often fairly high, and it doesn't provide vision and dental coverage for adults. Jeff, talk to us about the pros of the ACA and what might be some solutions to its limitations. From our point of view, looking at the ground, uh, what impact the ACA has had on our operation, and it's really had no impact whatsoever. You know, you touched on that there's no dental coverage, there's no vision coverage. So it's really uh, we still have to turn those patients away every single clinic as they come along. You know, Ram, uh, Stan said it best that, you know, we're, we're there to fill the gaps, okay, uh, to bring awareness uh, of the situation, the, what's going on on the ground. And we don't have the solution. You know, Stan spent time uh, both sides of the aisle. Senator Bob Corker, you talked about Bernie Sanders, and with all those legislators, you know, trying to come up with a solution for them to solve it and uh, for RAM to make it aware and to treat those people that have fallen through those gaps that are huge in our society. I, I mean, I would add to that that, yes, you pointed out problems with co-pays, deductibles, um, the fact that dental and vision is not covered. But I would add to that that um, there was a, 
a certain amount of leeway with states they could they could opt out of kind of applying the ACA to its maximum effect and um in in watering down um the ACA uh, as the states that have chosen to do that I do think that has affected their ability to um provide um healthcare to those in need in those states because it, it it's basically reduced their ability to access uh, as much funding because they didn't they've kind of gone for like ACA light as it were mm, um yeah. and then we touched upon in the film um you know I won't mention names but you know one politician says oh they're, they're both at the clinic and they're both you know going around me and one says well he's here today but actually he voted against uh, extending the full effect of the ACA to this state so you know there's some some level of hypocrisy there yeah so that, that hasn't helped from from my external position here because as you may have noticed I'm not an American but <laughs> if I may oh, I'm just I'm just baffled by this idea of hypocrisy within American politics you'll have to tell me more uh, about this, <laughs> this thing that you captured through the film yeah, Paul, there, there are there are countless stories um, that you've told that are so humbling. I wonder why you chose to tell the stories of the people you featured in the film. I think the I, I think the idea of not having the safety net of healthcare uh, really shocked me and resonated with me. Um, I grew up in relative privilege, but I think there was there was a period like where we nearly lost everything and lost our house and so on. So I don't know, maybe maybe this idea of like not having something and, and things been taken away from you and not having a kind of safety net there of things like a healthcare system. Maybe that resonates with me because I'd had a little a brush in childhood with um poverty which we uh which we managed to resolve and not lose our house um but um it just it, it it's just the idea that i think ultimately that such a uh, affluent nation um should make healthcare so unattainable for people it seems so unnecessary uh, i remember speaking to somebody in the queue in wise and they were saying it was $300 to register at the clinic without being seen, just for registering. It was $4,000 if they went to ER with a broken arm. And any any form of kind of moderate to serious cancer was like $100,000 upwards. And I just thought this is completely unsustainable. Um, and, and this doesn't just... Uh, it would be more understandable if it only affected the so-called lower stratas of society. That would be, my brain could just about, but to know that there's so many kind of middle-class people with um, jobs and, um, but they're in a job perhaps that doesn't provide uh, healthcare as part of the employment contract. Um, so that, that was always a thing Stan wanted to say, I think it's like, it's the so-called working poor, you know, there's a better, better word for that. But people who are um, in gainful employment and been active, you know, um, and they're still struggling to like just, you know, self doing things like self-treating broken arms um, at home because you couldn't. 
well, you know, you could go to ER, but then you'll incur $4,000 worth of debt. And maybe you're somebody that's already got a little bit of debt from previous medical things that have gone on. Um, all of that just seemed unnecessary to me. And a kind of like psychological toll that um, is being carried by America every day. I mean, this is this is a real stand quote, but he was he was always like, what if something cataclysmic intervenes in your life tonight on your way home and suddenly you have like massive healthcare needs, which could like happen to anybody, right? Unless you've got like the, a really great policy in the US, you're looking at a financial hit for that. That shouldn't be, that really shouldn't be the case. There shouldn't be a connection between like, it, well, in these more, in these wealthier kind of de democratic societies and stuff, um, but that have got the money essentially. That shouldn't be the case. That there should be a connection between your healthcare outcomes and how much you earn. You know how much salary drops in the bank every every month. That's not that's not a good way to run a society. Um, and yeah, I just thought I that this is something that actually um, exercises me, and I think it still does. I think uh, ho hopefully after 10 years on this topic there's, there's still some some passion for um how unjust it is yeah. you know one thing uh if you look at the, the movie is paul spent 10 years on this project and he didn't just come in with his beret uh sit in the parking lot and, and just wait for that right patient to come through he was actually with the patients he was in the parking lot overnight you know he had imagined an innate ability to relate and connect so was when he interviewed and spent time with those patients they were on a one-to-one -one relationship and they opened up in my opinion and really just bared their heart and their soul to the real what's going on and, and how it impacted their life it was a it was a 10-year journey and uh, I always was excited when he came and his team and, and they were they were the patient's experience. They were in the car, in the cold, uh, every single time. So they could make that connection, you know, with those with those individuals that are in the film. You know, Paul, you were touching on this earlier and Jeff, I'd love to get your insight on this from the organizational perspective. Um, you know, RAM brings together people from all different walks of life, political persuasions, race, and religion. What do you think it takes to bring such a, a diverse group of people together around a common mission? For my part, I think it's an unmet need. It's, it's realizing that it's one thing we all have in common, and wherever you are on, on the philosophical, the political, we have a need for healthcare. We have these bodies that need maintained. Uh, we didn't come with an instruction manual and we need people to help us along the way. It's the one thing we have in common, no matter where you are, as far as income levels, high, low, a tooth hurts, a tooth hurts, you know? And it, it comes together and there's those words, I need your help. When somebody says, I need your help, we're gonna help them out. It may take us a long time to get to that, but we'll ask for that help. But when those patients, individuals come to a RAM clinic, we only ask them one question, that's where does it hurt? And from there we go on. But it's that one narrow focused, let's make a difference to our neighbors.
Stan passed away in uh, 2018. Uh, his living legacy is remote area medical. Um, you know, Jeff, what has the last five years been like without him? And what gives you hope for the future? Well, I miss him dearly. Uh, my office was right next to his. He would go from the back where he slept on the ground, uh, slept on the floor in the back with his archaic uh, tables all spread out with papers for his file and come by and we'd check in and say, well, what's, what's going on today, boss? And he would share what's going on. And meanwhile, he would tell me what he had done all along, which was phenomenal. I never knew what was going to happen if we were going to say, oh, by the way, we've got to jump on a plane and, and go down to uh, Diana or, or go to Puerto Rico. Or by, by the way, there's an event in, in Texas. Uh, when you travel to him, you, you would leave. You never know when you'd come back. But he was a visionary. And, and he knew that he wanted to leave a legacy. And he put in a structure of, of a great organization with a CEO, with the chiefs, uh, with a really good, strong, passionate board. And uh, in my, I think he was very confident that would go on and live past him. He saw going from 12 clinics a year in, in 2012, 12 operations, to by the time he had passed away, uh, we, we were doing uh, well over 100 clinics a, a, a year. So I had I think he, he felt good that it passed the torch. Now, he was the boss. Uh, you know, I've been here since 2019, and when he said jump, man, we jumped, and we'd stay off the ground until he told us we could come back down. But uh, he was always there for us, and it's uh, if you walk through the halls of this office, there's uh, remembrance of him and honors to him throughout the whole building. Well, got a last question for, for both of you. Um, one of the most poignant statements from Stan um, was when he spoke about the psychological burden one carries when you see the deeds of others. Uh, Americans live in socio-political silos, often not seeing or ignoring the treacherous reality of others. Knowing this context, you know, how do we expose people to the needs of others and share the psychological burden of our neighbors' medical struggles? Uh, Jeff, we'll start with you. Uh, from my point, it's a, we have a great opportunity for individuals to volunteer with RAM. They don't have to fundraise, do logistics. All they have to do is come to a clinic. It's really simple to join the journey. Go to ramusa.org and click on volunteer. Uh, you don't need to be a medical professional. I have no medical background. Uh, we need you there to help register those patients, give them a smile. If you can't join the journey yourself, go to ramusa.org and click on donate. And don't Paul. forget to buy a ticket to the movie. <laughs> and Paul, last word. I think the way to bring people together is in doing something rather than um, spending time on social media or something, talking about it or expressing like a particular viewpoint. Um, seems to me that volunteering is addictive. Um, and when people do it, they realize like how silly oh, and they see the benefit of it. Like they see somebody's suffering relieved and as they walk out of a clinic, I think that's when it probably strikes them how silly it is to be at odds with like your fellow uh, RAM volunteer who may be from a different background, have a different opinion or have a, a different political viewpoint. So it's in the actual doing and volunteering that we get perspective and realize that things like that don't matter. Um, and all that matters is 
being able to do more remote area medical clinics and and keep the mission going. Our guests are Paul Michael Angel and Jeffrey Eastman. The film is Medicine Man, the Stan Brock story in theaters November 14th. You can learn more about their work and film at medicinemanstanbrock.com. Paul and Jeff, it's been a joy talking with you. Thank you for inviting us to celebrate what American people can do and achieve when they come together to care for their communities. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Paul. Thanks very much. We are grateful for a chance to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of scripture with the NRSV updated edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner Webb University School of Divinity, a model ministry, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.